0: Good evening everyone who's listening. Um, I'm Rich Duncan with Inkheist, Heist and I'm joined by my co-hosts Laurel Hightower and Shane Douglas Keane. And tonight we're talking to John Langan, who's the author of The Fisherman, House of Windows and numerous collections, including his most recent one, Children of the Fang and Other Genealogies, which I got to say is one hell of a title.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And uh, thank you, everybody who's listening. I'm happy you're listening to me.
0: So um, one one thing we like to do when we have guests on is just kind of have them do a, a new kid on the school speech, um, new kid at school speech, um, to just kind of, you know, explain a little bit about yourself and uh, your works for people who might not be familiar with you.
1: Sure. Um. I have been publishing horror stories since 2001. Um, I uh, published my first novel, uh, which was called House of Windows, in 2009. Actually, I published my first collection, uh, which was called Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters, in 2008. And then my first novel, House of Windows, came out in 2009. Um, uh, I've written one other novel. You mentioned The Fisherman and um and three other the collections of stories, the the collection that's coming out, Children of the Fang, will be uh, my my fourth uh, collection. i uh, I was one of the founders uh, of the Shirley Jackson Awards, and i was uh, I was a juror for the awards for the first three years. This past uh, year, I've been elected vice president. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but, um, if our president Brett Cox is Richard Nixon, I'm his Spiro Agnew and, um, <laughs> with that ringing endorsement and, um, I, uh, I've, uh, I've, I've reviewed for a few years. I was reviewing horror pretty steadily for Locus, uh, magazine. I've, I've kind of tapered off the last year and a half, uh, because I've taken, the uh, um, a more demanding day job teaching in a boarding school and that's really absorbed um, a lot of my time and my soul so i haven't been doing a lot of uh, a lot of reviewing I've, I've really been trying to sort of husband my energies to to write fiction and uh, yeah the new collection comes out on august 18th from from word horde press uh, i'm delighted to be working with them again we uh, we work together on the fishermen. And um, I wanted a chance to work with them a, a second time, and Ross was interested in, in doing a, a collection of stories, so, so uh, here we are. And uh, it has an introduction by Stephen Graham Jones, um, which alone is worth the price of purchase, I would say. If you're a fan of Stephen's work, and which one of us isn't, and even the right. Stephen completest, you need to have this introduction.
2: And that's the thing about Stephen too. You're exactly right about that. Is um, if the guy writes a grocery list on a cocktail napkin, you're going to want to read it.
1: Exactly. You it's going to be the best. It's going to be an incredibly good looking grocery list. Exactly. So, uh, this 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 uh, this introduction made my book fifteen percent more handsome. So.
3: <laughs> well, it I, I have to say, you know, at the risk of fangirling a little bit, it it really didn't need the help. I mean. Uh, this is because this is just I I'm a little bit I'm about halfway through it. Um, and it's just every story like I just feel like I'm just like kind of diving deeper into it. So I'm I don't know. I, I really,
1: really love this one. Thank you. Thank you so much. That that really means a lot. Um, I um I wanted with this collection to just have a big book. Um, I, the, the collection before this, uh, which is called Sephira and Other Betrayals. Um, is, is a much more tightly focused collection. I, I had a, a grouping of stories that I realized were about betrayal, like sort of obsessively about betrayal. And I also had a couple of um, uncompleted, um, unpublished stories that were uh, also about betrayal. And I thought, okay, I can put all this together and I'll have this really. Um, thematically speaking, this really tight collection. And then I, I thought, OK, I'd like to go the opposite direction and I'd like to just have this big sprawling thing. And um, I guess one of the things I've been, I've been one of my reference points uh, that I've been bringing up is, is something like King's uh, Skeleton Crew, where you just had all these crazy things in, in that collection. Um, McCammon did the same thing with Blue World. Um, yeah. Barker, Barker did the same thing with the Books of Blood, if you imagine them as just one big... Uh, one giant volume instead of the six separate volumes they were published in here. And um I, I kind of freaked out a little bit then because I was like, oh wait, what's the theme? Um and uh and I kind of realized that a lot of the stories had been written for anth- for for um like tribute anthologies basically. Someone would, would say, Oh, we want to do a, a Thomas Ligotti tribute anthology or a Laird Baron tribute anthology or um Or uh, Paul Tremblay uh, contacted me and said, hey, Stephen Graham Jones is going to be the guest of honor at this uh, at this convention. And let's write a little something for him. So um, so I realized that the the book could function as a kind of, um, I I think, necessarily incomplete family tree, because uh, um, a lot of the stories are in dialogue with Lovecraft, because a lot of the things I've been invited to these last um, 10 years, uh, have been Lovecraft or, you know, Lovecraftian anthologies. But, um, so, so I, I have to admit that, um, you know, right up front that the, my, my frame of reference, uh, for a lot of these stories is, you know, pretty white, dead white males, you know, dead, dead straight white males. Um, and there were other writers like Shirley Jackson say, or Salman Rushdie, who are very important to me, uh, whom I hope to get to, uh, as it were in, in future stories.
2: Um, and, you know, the thing about that is that, like, when you were talking about, you know, oh, no, where's the theme? The first thing that came to mind with me is um, versatility would be yeah. the theme I would call up in that case. Because it's kind of like, okay, is this a collection or an anthology? Because I'm not sure the same yeah. guy wrote both these stories. <laughs> well, you know what I you. mean? <laughs> thank you. You know, the yeah.
1: Many, many years ago, and I wish I could remember who to give credit for, for, for this remark, because it's just stuck with me. Um, a, a, some lovely person said, Oh, you know, Langan reminds me of like of Ray Bradbury and, and T.C. Boyle, because I, I never know what I'm going to get. And, um, and, and that was just, you know, obviously I, I still remember it. It was one of the most flattering things anybody has ever said about my, about my work. And, um, you know, Peter Straub, who's, who's one of my writing heroes, talked about, um, for him, the importance of versatility and the, the importance of versatility and virtuosity of being able to do undoable things, I think was the way he, he phrased it. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm quite as good as Peter, but but I, I aspire to that. I, I look at him as a kind of a, you know, a, a, a guiding star or something like that, you know, to be able to, to, to have a, um, a career in which I've, I've kind of I, I, I could move through different things, different kinds of fiction approaches to fiction in the way that Peter has seems to me a really worthwhile goal.
2: Um, yeah, it does. And I think it's interesting, too, because a few shows back now, um, Josh, May- Josh Mallerman and uh, John F.D. Taft had basically the same exact sentiments about the mm-hmm. same, same guy. You know, same observations and everything. Um, so yeah,
1: and they've done, I mean, Josh, um, both of them, but, but I'm just thinking like Josh off the top of my head. Yeah. Every novel Josh has done. I mean, he's just, he just changes it up completely. Um, I haven't read, um, I haven't read Mallory. So, but, from what I've been reading about it, it seems as if even though it is a sequel to bird box again, he's, he's not just content to, to retread the the same steps, but he's, he's no. going in a, a different direction. Um, and yeah, John has, uh, John Taff has, uh, um, his, his reach is pretty wide, uh, indeed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'm just kind of, you know, it's interesting you say that because, um, you know, I'm sure you want to do that with all of your work, but, you know, you said this is your uh, fourth collection. And I was just wondering if that's kind of what appeals to you, you know, about the short form and maybe your enjoyment of it is, you know, they're, and I don't know necessarily your process if they are quicker, but, I would think that they're a little bit quicker than, you know, doing a novel. So maybe you are able to kind of explore a little bit more and a little bit quicker in that form.
1: You know, I take forever to write everything. Uh, just ask Ellen Datlow. She never tires <laughs> of saying that. Oh, <laughs> it's always late. Um, it will be on my two. I, 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 you know, what's that song about, you know, and I can't remember who it is that, that has that song about when I die, I'll be I'll be late to my own funeral. You know, it. it uh, <laughs> Uh, it's not Jason Isbell, but it's one of those kinda sounding singers, and um, um, yeah, it just it it can take me a long time to get anything uh, to get anything done. I, I would I read about people, uh, you know, like 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 Stephen or Josh who were just or Phil Fricassi who were who were like, yeah, you know, I had a week off, so I wrote three novels, and I, I just think, <laughs> man, I would. I would love to be able to, to do that, but it just, it's not, it's not how it works for me. And I've just tried to accept that I work faster than I used to. Um, when I started off, if I could produce one story a year, I was, I was happy. Um, now I, I can maybe do four or five stories in a year, depending. Um, novels are weird in, in the, after a while, a novel really starts to gather its own momentum. And so it, it, when i'm writing a long a longer piece uh like safira with the the which is the short novel that's that's in my my third collection that starts my third collection as as i got further and further into that it's about 50,000 words and i would say certainly by the time i hit the halfway point i could do two or three pages a, a day say uh at sometimes usually i do about a page a day and maybe a page and a half um, and I, I could do um, uh, more than that because the, the narrative was just carrying me forward. I no longer I no longer had to invent quite as much. I was I was following through on the implications of what I'd already set in in motion. Um, but it's it's true. You're, you're right. I, I love the idea of having this kind of body of work when it comes to stories where um, I'm just kind of messing around and, and trying out all these different um, trying out and trying on, if, if you will, these different, um, these different tropes, these different, um, you know, I, 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 love the vampire. I love the werewolf. I love all those traditional monsters. And I'm just like, oh, what's another way you could write a vampire story? Um, and, um, and even, even the, um, you know, kind of lesser known monsters. Um, I, I, uh, I, uh for a couple of different fundraising things that I've been part of, um, I've been tasked uh, with writing a Banshee story and with writing a Wendigo story, and damn if those didn't I mean they were they were part of the reason I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the challenges was because they were so challenging. I thought, how do you do a banshee story? how is that how is that even possible? And I think I finally I think I finally figured it out. Um, the Wendigo is still kind of in process, but you know this past week I watched um, Willow Creek, which I had never seen before. Um, and I, I realized I'm terrified of sasquatches, uh, which was not something I ever really knew about myself. Um, and I thought I have to write a sasquatch story now. And I thought, well, how do you do a sasquatch story? So, um, so yeah, that that that's kind of fun to to think about how how you can um, marry or or blend the the approach to the story with some of the material of the story.
3: I am really excited yeah. about the Banshee story. Yeah. <laughs> that's, um, Banshee is like, for whatever reason, was always the the kind of legend that just really caught me and, and super terrified me um, as a kid when nothing else really did. So I I, I don't know if you can, is that something that's going to be in an anthology?
1: If um, If all goes according to plan, it'll be the original story in my next collection. I hope... Um, what, where I'm at right now professionally is that I have this huge backlog of stories that I've been publishing over really over about the last 10 years. And, um, I, I got to the point where I, I thought I, I want to collect more of these things and, and bring them out. You know, that there's, there's one, uh, kind of conventional wisdom, one strain of conventional wisdom that says, well, you put out a new collection every five years or something like that. And I thought, well, at that rate, I'll I'll be dead. I'll be long dead by the time everything, all these stories are collected. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to do a bunch of them. And um, so right now I've, I've got one more collection that I'm hoping to bring out next year. Uh, and that will be, and, and these are horror stories that are more autobiographically inflected. And um and the banshee story will be the will be the original story in that uh in that collection. So, oh, right but yeah, I, I will add that um my family is Scottish, um but with lots of family connections to Ireland. And um when I was growing up, we had very close family friends uh, who were from Ireland. And that was uh, that the banshee was the one legend that they swore to. Um I, I remember. I remember the um, the man and the couple saying that his aunt had heard the banshee crying when you know some grandfather or something had died, and he said it with utter you know he wasn't fooling around he wasn't he wasn't uh, there there was no wink and a nod this was all very serious.
3: Hmm. That's that's a well were you able to use some of that in writing the story or is it more um, just
1: you know what actually what happened what was funny was was that my my digging into the the legend of the banshee made it at first more challenging because the actual you know the the historical banshee um was only supposed to wail at the at the death of a member of one of like the seven or i think it was the seven sort of royal families or 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 uh of, of old ireland and so um if I died, they were just like, "Well, whatever, you know, the, the banshee <laughs> might whistle, you know, but um <laughs> you know, cluck her tongue or snap her fingers <laughs> or something but, but, you know, I heard the banshee whistling
2: uh, <laughs> in my in my case, she'd open a b- bottle of whiskey and
1: <laughs> and just like pour de- <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm pouring one for my homie Shane, Um, but I, uh, um, so yeah, so originally it was, it was only supposed to be, it it was almost a mark um, of you being like, like, I don't know, um, authentically Irish or, or authentically descended from the great houses of Ireland or, or something like that. And that part of it, I found, I, I didn't really like as much. I didn't, I didn't like it as this. Because I had always thought of the Banshee as just something that wailed when an old person was going to die, or not even an old person, but just when a person was going to die. And so the thought that it was like, well, you had to be worth a little bit more for the Banshee <laughs> to show up, I just thought that was like kind of hideously classist, you know, and I, I just thought, no, okay, I'm not going to. i'm gonna have to change that a bit um you're not gonna
3: write about elitist banshee right we're gonna have an elitist banshee you know the banshee
1: (laughs) gets kicked out you know (laughs) no mom i'm gonna yell for everybody um (laughs) (laughs) rebellious banshees you know um but um but yeah the um so so that um um that it's funny how you know you dig into the the, the legendary sometimes which i love to do i'm i'm, I'm i can uh, i can just fall down rabbit holes of, of research for, for days at a time um, but um, the the problem with the banshee in a in a way is that it, it's it's almost passive you know it's it's a signal that something terrible is happening um, it's it's a signal that the, that someone presumably whom you love very much is is making their way out of this life, and um, so it's this this symbol of just you know the approach of just utter grief and, and devastation. But it's kind of hard to to make that you know um, vampires are a lot more active. Let's say in comparison, um, the the banshee. Unless you want to try to mess around with the banshee even more and and make the banshee in some way predatory or something like that, you know, trying to kill people because they like to sing or something. Um, it, it, that starts to, then it's no longer the Banshee, you know, then it's just like a singing vampire. Um, yeah, which well, don't I, get would, me wrong, I would read that vampires. Too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Buffy, the vampire slayer, right. Once more with feeling. <laughs>
2: but, um, no i thought that care i find that uh particular subject really really super interesting from a fictional standpoint because it's like it seems to me like uh, it would have to be something that was basically the result of a story rather than the story being so much the result of a banshee if that makes any sense
1: yeah No. Oh, absolutely absolutely and and um I, I think what's, what's interesting to me, right. Is, is that when you deal with, um, you know, the vampire, just cause I'm, that's on my brain. Um, there, there are a whole, uh, it, it comes trailing a whole bunch of conventions of, of atmosphere, of plot. Um, and you can play with those things. You can, you can, you can work against them. You can, um, uh, th- there's, uh, it, it's, it's almost like, uh, You know, the comparison I always make with these things is is that they're like formal poetry and and you you know, a vampire shows up in the same way a sonnet shows up. And it's like, well, it's 14 lines long and it breaks into eight and eight lines and six lines. And this is the rhyme scheme and this is what's supposed to happen here and here. And so you can, um, you know, the best poets play with sonnet form. Um, and, and use it to work against itself and all that kind of stuff. And, and so you can do that with a, with a vampire or a werewolf or, or, uh, Frankenstein's monster or whatever. Um, yeah, the Banshee becomes a lot trickier because it doesn't trail that same, at least that I'm aware of, um, that I've been able to find out. It doesn't trail all of that same sort of armature with it and, and architecture. So then it's a, a question of how do I, how do I come up with an appropriate, armature and architecture for, you know, for that, uh, for that figure. And, um, and it took me a long, long time. It really, I, I kicked ideas around for, for months. It, it felt like, um, and I, I mean, I, I believe, I believe that, the I, I imagine, I guess what I should say is I imagine my consciousness as like a skyscraper or something, you know, and, and like, um or maybe i should say my mind is as a skyscraper and like you know i I figure that my conscious mind is like up on the penthouse and maybe the top floor and then it just goes down it goes you know all the way down to the ground to the basement the boiler room the sub-basement whatever the sewers you know um and and so i think that that on those those levels those those sort of um they're not all even subterranean just beneath the beneath the penthouse things are are always happening um you know stephen king talks about the fournets his little his little worker uh creatures uh in, in your typewriter and so i think the fornits are always that they're always at work in the building and every now and again something clicks and they you know they kind of run to the elevator and run up to the top and say all right here we go what do you think about this um and i try i try really hard to remain receptive to my own ideas because i um i, I think if you're not careful I, I think you can over time, and I think this is what happens a lot of times to, uh, I think maybe the younger writers in a, in a way, is that you think that's not good enough, that's stupid, that's dumb. And the message that your unconscious gets is stop sending information, you know, stop sending these ideas along, because they're just going to get rejected. And I, so I, I think that you you try to train your imagination Uh, This is an idea uh, in in Kate Wilhelm's book Storyteller, um, which is a kind of a a, a combination of of autobiography and and sort of writing guide. She she compares it to a dog, you know, that if your little dog brings you a toy and you're just like, get out of here, get lost. Eventually, the dog isn't going to want to play with you anymore. Um, But if, um, and you know, the same thing is true with your kid, right? Um, But if, if you say, well, okay, you know, maybe, maybe well, fine, let's play with this a little bit. Okay, what what else have you got? Bring me, bring me some more stuff. Then you kinda train your, your um I, I think you, you train your your unconscious to, to just to, to bring you the, you know, any idea. And also, I think I think you also kinda train yourself to say, well, okay, so this seems like a strange idea, but 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 what could we do with this? Is there anything that we could do with this? Um and uh, and maybe there isn't, but hey, that's okay. At least we went through the effort of trying to, to see around the, the edges of it.
3: I think that's a great, I think that is an excellent analogy. And I feel like I want to put it on a big poster and like bring it to all writing classes. Because, because I do, I think you're right. I think that is, I think that's an issue of just constant self-rejection. Yes. Um, you know, because it's, because writing is, is fantasy life. And it and it's just putting your fantasy life on the page. Um, and sometimes I mean I mean, that makes perfect sense that you're like some of these fantasies that come, you know, come up from the lower levels, you're like, Well, that's silly. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Like it, it's one of the things that that I've been kind of learning as as, you know, I delve in and read more things and more sort of out there things, is like when I wonder, like, gosh, how how do people how do people reach these outer limits? You know, how do they go beyond all these levels? And and you're right, they they encourage the elevator to keep coming up with new stuff I I love that
1: yeah I used to um you know um I don't want to sound gimmicky but you know one of the things that's happened to me over the years is is that like uh, sometimes I would get invitations for anthologies and I would be like oh my god what a terrible idea you know country music and Cthulhu um (laughs) and I would think that's just that's awful you know but like but but then I would be like, you know, again, the little four would be like, OK, we know this idea is terrible. But, you know, suppose suppose you were to kind of mess around with it. And then, you know, then I would think to myself, oh, well, you know, you've always you've always been fascinated with the story of Hank Williams, senior dying in that car, you know, driving through the darkness. um I can't remember what it was that killed him even, but he was dying in the back seat of a car on his, on his, on, you know, trying to get to a hospital he never made it to. And there he was in the darkness and he was surrounded by the dark. And what, what was, what was that like in the, in that, that darkness, you know, those many kinds of darkness and, blah 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 and all of a sudden then i'm like okay you could write that story you could and and that could be more than just like a crappy kind of uh um oh look haha ha, it's funny cthulhu's got a guitar um but but it could be something that that maybe is is going to mean something more to, to you when you when you write it so i i kind of prize um um like b- bad anthology ideas i guess or or, or i kind of think there is no such thing because i i think to myself and it doesn't at this point it doesn't even it doesn't matter whether i'm invited or not i'd like to be invited but if even if i'm not you know i i look at um i look at things um, ellen datlow had an anthology of alice in wonderland stories a few years ago um and she didn't invite me and that was fine and um um but like I, I thought to myself how would i write an alice in wonderland story and then recently like last year mark morris contacted me about a, a sort of unthemed anthology and uh, and and what popped into my head was ah oh, you could write your alice in wonderland story and it just came out you know like in a like 10 days or something like that so um i, I try to keep open for for that stuff i think that um we we run the risk of looking at at um looking down our noses at at what's out there yeah there's, there's a lot of schlock out there i mean you know that but but you can do a lot of neat stuff with schlock you you can you know like like there's there's no i don't think there's any well with some, a few exceptions i don't think there's any idea that's like inherently good or inherently bad there's just what you do with that idea um and i think um you know when you're I used to teach creative writing um, at my local college, and one of the exercises I would give the kids would would be, I would say, okay, you know, somebody name a, a color. All right, somebody else give me an article of clothing. Somebody else give me a mythological character. Okay, you've got to write something that uses all three of these things. Um, and people would come up with these amazing stories and poems just from these arbitrary, uh, arbitrary uh, uh, assignments or arbitrary requirements. So I, I think that um, I, I think that as a writer, you can make use of that yourself, you know. And and it, it um, I always wonder sometimes if having those kinds of requirements, in the same way, you know, you have to write the sonnet; it's fourteen lines. I I sometimes wonder if if that having that structure taken care of for you allows you then to, to explore maybe the themes that you're more interested in the content that you're more interested in. Cause you don't have to worry about, you know, how long is each line going to be? It's going to be 10 syllables. Um, that stuff is taken care of for you. So yeah, you know, your vampire story, oh, it's a vampire, you know, like, like certain things are going to happen, but then that allows you maybe to focus on other things Um, Rather than worrying about, um, uh, you know, does my vampire have one tooth, you know, one giant tooth in the middle or does it have a mouthful of fangs? No, no, don't worry about that. Just let the vampire be the vampire and see what else, see see what what taking, what being able to take that for granted um, allows you to, to excavate.
3: I, yeah. I, I agree, and it, and this is kind of putting me. In one of my, um, one of the short story writers that I really admire is is Haley Piper, um, mm-hmm. and she just does, you know, these just really she could just bang out this totally out there, you know, incredible story that, you know, I could just never think of. But she had told me that she will look, even if she doesn't, isn't planning on submitting, she looks at short story calls for, um, inspiration. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, I think you're right. Like, you know, when you're talking about that, I think that some of the hardest ones to write for that I have felt the least creative with have been the ones that initially seemed like such a cool idea because I realized it was on the sort of spoon fed and I wasn't sure how to make it mine.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, mm-hmm. And so you're right. I mean, if you, you know, if you have something like that, that's like completely nuts and you initially look at and think like, how the hell could I write something, you know, that really gives scope for the creativity on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think so. And it, it's weird. You know, I, I find that more often than not, I've noticed that when I get um, an invitation to some kind of like cosmic horror, Lovecraft kind of thing, um, my focus tends to be much more domestic and, and much, much. Um, I tend to focus in much more on the personal, even though there may be big monsters in the background or, or whatever. Um, but the that kind of Lovecraftian sublime just tends to drive me in the opposite direction, and so I wind up writing things that are, are, uh, you know, much more Raymond Carver or something like that. Just hey, this guy's making a cup of coffee, you know, and there's a shuggath in the backyard or something like that. <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> well, and I, I noticed, like in particular, one of the one of the stories that's the shorter one of the shorter ones in here with um, and I don't think I have the title of it, but it dealt with the with the white rhino gang
1: um oh yeah 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 my my uh, uh my uh, orson wells uh exercise yeah yes. um.
3: <laughs> well it was such a i mean whoever looks at that aspect you know it's just like this this one little slice of life of the build-up to you know i don't want to spoil it but but of this particular sort of trope and then it's just like then then it's you know that it ends and you're like well okay but but yeah now what you know but you're looking right. at I mean, it's just, it's just such an interesting, I don't this is, this is really great. I'm sorry. I'm taking tons of mental notes because I, I love, no, this, no, um, it this? you know, you, you, I, I can imagine you were an extremely effective creative writing teacher. Yeah.
1: I don't, I don't know if yeah, I was, I, I don't know. Like with, with intro to creative writing in my college, uh, when I, when I used to teach there, intro to creative writing was taken mostly by education majors. It fulfilled a requirement so it was people who didn't really want to be writers necessarily, they just, they were going to be teachers. And so I looked at it for them as, as trying to provide them with a lot of exercises that they could do for their students, um, or with their students, I should say. And, um, I tried really hard. The other thing I tried really hard to do was to kind of divvy them up. Um, a lot of creative writing classes, you all sit in one big circle and, uh, you submit your story and, You know, everybody gives feedback on it, Um, and maybe this way we get to read, like, one of your pieces or two of your pieces in a semester. Um, And what I wanted was something different. I wanted you to be uh, getting a lot more feedback, so I would put people in smaller groups of, like, three or four for um at least for for the first until the midterm and then they had a chance to switch up their their groups and the idea was that um, it was usually a a a two-day-a-week class so one day we would talk about the sonnet and i would assign them i'd say write two sonnets for next class and then the next class they would have to to read each other's sonnets and they would have to write responses to them um, and you know the the writing responses thing was probably where everybody kind of fell fell down the most. Most people just tended to talk it, but I knew that they were going to talk it, and I didn't want them to. I wanted them to have to work at expressing themselves critically about one another's work, and um, and and I just I, I treated it I treated that as um, like like a I don't know <laughs> in a gentler kind of way um, I, I guess because I thought. Uh, there's no point in me harassing these guys about, um, you know, whatever, not being the next Shakespeare when when that was not what the class really was functioning as. And and uh, the few times I did other classes in this, the creative writing sequence, um, that was when things got a little bit more, um, I, I want to say intense, but not in a bad way. I, I never wanted anybody to feel like. I do feel bad about their writing. But but I, I hate the I hate the thought of the creative writing teacher who just berates you and belittles you and, and what have you. I, I I think people who say that creative writing teachers are coaches, that's not a bad analogy. Um of course a coach can be really horrible to you as well. Um, But a good coach. I I think the creative writing teacher is really there to kind of cheer you on and maybe to help you with some technical stuff, you know, to to say, okay, you know, you're describing this guy just walked in and he just saw this this murdered body. But you think about what it would be like if, if you saw a murdered body, you would see the horror of it first. The way you've described it is the way we would see it in a movie where we pan up from the feet up to the head. And that's not. That's not, you know, so there, there were there were kind of technical things like that that I think you can you can help people with. But um, a lot of it uh, honestly just has to do with patience and persistence. Um, and and you know, here's the thing. When I took creative writing classes when I was a kid, when I used to meet writers in my 20s, I would be like, what's your advice to a young writer? And, and they would say, you know, write and I would say, no, no, no. You know, what's your advice? There was like, you know, yeah, yeah, right, right. That's what you tell the other suckers. But come on, yeah. how do you really get it done? You
2: know? No, like that is actually the number one best advice you can ever get about writing.
1: <laughs> exactly. And and I think what it was was I was looking for I, I had this kind of um, like Neoplatonic conception that, that I think a lot of. A lot of writing students have about writing which is that like the idea exists somewhere up in the idea cloud and you kind of transmit it onto the paper and i didn't appreciate the fact that that writing is itself the act of writing and i i, I mean i handwrite, but if you type it's the you know same diff i guess um it it that that act isn't of itself creative and dynamic um and we've all I, I think if you've done any amount of writing, you've had that experience of you're you you're writing the story and all of a sudden in the process of writing, like you realize something new about the story. You're like, oh, my God, you know, um, and and you get a new insight or you add a new scene or something like that. And um And so that to me, that it's like the secret to writing is writing. I think that was what I didn't understand that that process of writing is generative of ideas. And if you can just hang in there with it, um, that will, that will happen. That will, that will become sustaining. And, um, you know, I was, I was a kid, I guess. It's just one of those things you, you, I I feel like I kind of learned as I got older. Um, but I learned by doing, you know, I, I, um and i've i've certainly said this to a number of you know probably tons of writing students over the years i don't know how many of them really believes me <laughs> I'm, sure, yeah. I'm sure they were like no dude what's the
2: secret <laughs> yeah no you're supposed to tell me the easy way man what yeah. the hell
1: <laughs> exactly right you know it's it's i, I remember um tc boyle came to to visit um my school when i was an undergrad and he was a brash young writer, probably in his mid to late 30s at that point. My friends and I went up to him afterwards and we were like, what's your advice for young writers? And he looked at us and said, marry a rich girl. Um, hmm. And that was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that that was pretty solid advice, but it you know, it is. is. <laughs> uh, we might change it to reflect our our modern times and such, but, you know. Acquaint yourself with a person who has a lot of cash, you know? Make yourself (laughs) yourself (laughs) indispensable to them. There's the practical advice. (laughs) Exactly. If you get nothing else out of this interview, let that be. The immortal words of T.C. Boyle. (laughs) Marry a rich person.
2: I remember in college the first creative writing course I took, though. um, It's like, you know, it was the very – I had – everything else had been you know technical writing and expository crap and um this was the first one that that i'd finally gotten all the prereqs to get into this and she's you know the teacher basically hey go home and write this and then come back and somebody will read it and i'm like far out this is exactly what i'm looking for and everybody in there's like oh man like Don't you want to write? I mean, isn't that why you're actually in this? Yeah. You know, (laughs) it's like this is an elective. You know that, right?
1: (laughs) You know, it's it's funny when I was when I started publishing and and um in the early two thousands, um and the internet was still a, a a fresh new thing. Um, I remember Michael Swanwick used to give advice on his, uh, blog or uh, writer page or whatever it was. And he was very snarky and he was very, um, he was very kind of ruthless, blunt and ruthless in a way he would just say, why should I give you advice? Why, you know, like, like you're competition to me, <laughs> why should I, why should I encourage that? And if you can't, if you can't find the motivation yourself, why, how do you think I'm going to give it to you? Um, and I make him sound nastier than he, at least that I think he intended to be. Maybe he really did intend to be a jerk. <laughs> you know? I, I don't know. And, I
2: didn't think jerk. I thought my hero. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I, I think that that's the the tough thing about it, right? Is is just um you 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 go in there and there's the blank screen or the blank page, and it's just you in that page or you in that screen, and and you have to. Uh, you have to put something, you have to do something there. So something has to happen. And I, I think for a lot of people, um, a lot of people like having written, um, but they don't necessarily yeah. like writing.
2: Which, yeah, exactly. You hit the nail on the head there. They like having yeah. the work under their belt and the artwork to show to people, but the process of making the art isn't necessarily pleasant to them. Yeah. And I even talked to a lot of authors since we started doing this podcast. We've talked to a lot of authors who actually say, oh, I really love to edit, but I don't like to write it. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I'm not I'm not criticizing that. It's what I, the point being that it's extremely interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I I enjoy both. Um, I, I I I love Um, I, I love that initial act of, of creation. I love that initial, um, and and there's something that's really exciting when the pages start to pile up, um, and, and it's like, Oh, look, now I'm at three, four, five, you know? And, and that's really, that's really exciting. Um, the, but the editing process is also kind of cool because I, I think in some ways I, I feel like, okay, this is where I'm going to, it is where I'm going to make it better and where, um, I'm going to read a story and think, "Wow, well, you know, um, you're repeating the same word all over that page. You've got to change that." Or um, and so I guess you know, for some of those mis- what I think of as mistakes, I guess, uh, or improvements I'd like to make, um, there's a certain feeling of relief, like, "Oh, thank God, I got that before I sent it out the I sent it out the door." Um, and sometimes in the edit, you can um, y- you find that the story is doing things you maybe didn't realize it was doing and that's kind of cool it's it's i kind of feel like um as a writer as any kind of creative person i think you should have some amount of faith in what you're doing uh people used to say to flannery o'connor you know why why are you a writer and she said because i'm good at it and they would you know be taken aback and she would say well why else should i do it Right? If, if, I'm, if I'm garbage, I'm wasting my time and I'm wasting your time by giving it to you. <laughs> and, you know, we none of us wants to be a jerk. Right. None of us wants to be um, uh, the, the person who's like, you know, I'm the greatest thing ever. But at the same time, it it, it doesn't seem inappropriate to me to have some respect for the work that you've done. And, and yeah. some I think you should be able to look over your stuff and say, OK, yeah, that's not bad. That's um that's the, maybe that's actually OK. I think it's
2: vital, actually, that you be able to do that to some degree. Yeah,
1: yeah I think especially know. over time. Right. If you're going to be in, if you're going to be writing for a long period of time, I, I think you have to be able to look back at your earlier stuff and say, OK, that that wasn't bad.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's me preaching, not practicing, but I'm getting better. <laughs> at the <practicing> part. Position, <laughs> heal thyself. Exactly. <laughs> So here's a question, since we're talking about S.G.J., we're not anymore, but uh, Stephen Graham Jones. Um,
1: we're always talking about him, and even when we don't think we're talking about him, we're yeah. talking about him.
2: Yep. Yeah. and yeah, you never know what's uh, what's being born in his mind because of this conversation.
1: But. Oh, I know, I'm like looking out my back window, and it's all dark, and I'm like, is that an elk out there? Right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But uh, you said in one of the stories I referenced, Muse, um, that he knows way more about craptastic films than you do, which suggests to me that you know a lot.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, Stephen and I have this, um, or, or I feel this great sort of um, uh, sympathy or something like that with with Stephen or or, or connection with Stephen because. Um, I, I guess, you know, two of my other great friends are Laird Barron and Paul Tremblay, and Laird and Paul hate everything. Um, <laughs> there, is, there is really nothing that either of them likes, ever. Um, and um, it, uh, um, so here's the thing. When Laird or Paul says, I like this, you can trust them. That's going, really? that's, that's going to be something that's that's gonna be something that's gonna be really interesting and, and worth looking at. But when they say I hate this, I didn't like it, it wasn't original, whatever, you can't trust that at all because they say that about everything. <laughs> um, I tend to be much more I from what I've seen of Steven, I tend to be much more like him. And that Steven's always like, Well, yeah, you know, for what it was, it was pretty good. You know, there was and that's how I feel. I'm like, well, you know, I haven't watched a lot of um take your pick, you know, uh, uh, um, I've watched a lot of films about mutant possums, you know, the, the <laughs> attack of family staying in a cabin. Right. Um, but for, for, you know, for what it is, it's pretty good. Yeah. You know?
2: I, have, then, I haven't seen a lot of vampire clowns, but not bad for a vampire
1: clown. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, uh, and so I think that's part of it is, is, um, I, 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 think like he does um i can appreciate a certain kind of uh, um intensity or or i was going to call it purity but that's not exactly the right word integrity maybe to to certain films where you know you look at a film and you say well it wasn't maybe a, a, a great budget and the acting could have been better or something like that but uh, like there was a recent film um on shutter called Ah Blood Quantum I think it was yeah. and it, it's about a Micmac uh, reservation in in northern Quebec when the zombie outbreak happens and only the the um the indigenous peoples are immune to the zombie plague yeah. and um you know could some of the acting be stronger sure but it's number one, it has a grandfather with a samurai sword, and you never go wrong with the grandfather oh. with the samurai sword in a movie. Especially not in a, uh, <laughs> yeah. especially not in a zombie movie. You know, there's that great scene if you've seen it where the the two younger guys are like, What happened to Grandpa? And they go into a room and there's just all these bodies and grandpa standing in there with his sword. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I really oh, that's did enjoy awesome. that. And um but but that film like that film, it, it it there's this wonderful kind of just through line to the end of it, and and it does not take anything back. It 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 doesn't it doesn't give you the sort of um, the the consolation of of the the unearned happy ending where it's like oh don't worry about it don't worry about it everything's okay it's like nope nope this is the way the world is and certain things are going to happen and and they happen, and um and and so yeah I really kind of respond. I respond to that in films that are uh, maybe they don't have you know uh, uh, Hollywood level budgets, but they still manage to do these these amazing things, and um, because because they they're they're they love what they're doing and and they take it seriously, and because even if they don't take themselves too seriously, they take what they're doing seriously, and I think I always. I mean, ironically, it's what I respond to in, say, Laird and Paul's work and, and also Stephen's work is the tremendous integrity that they they bring to it, this sense that what they are doing, they are they are dead serious about. They may have a great time doing it um, and they may do all kinds of crazy, fun stuff doing it, but but they have this this utter integrity. And I really I really aspire to that. I respect that and admire that a, a great, great deal and I, I feel I feel whatever it is you're doing uh, in life in general, but especially when you're making art, um, you should be trying to do it with integrity. Um, And so, yeah, so I, I, I... I like the way that Steven can recognize that in in um in a movie like Hell Comes to Frogtown or something like that and um and uh, which I just watched last night for the first time because I thought Hell Comes to Frogtown I've never heard of this movie um and then I was like now I know why um, but how could you not watch it I mean yes. Hell comes to you know Frogtown. what it was when when uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper died Everybody was like, "Oh, they live, they live And I was like, yes, of course, classic movie and hell comes to Frogtown and I said, yeah. "Hell, what is this?" And I finally found it and watched it and <laughs> I it's 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 very problematic by by today's standards yeah. but but it also has its own cheesy kind of integrity again, like, like its own you know it's it, um yeah not yeah anyway. My son was like, "What?" I'm like trying to explain the movie to him as, as we're driving around today, and he's like, "Seriously? People made movies like this?"
2: <laughs> I can't remember what the name of the one is that I watched not too long ago, but it's it's got a tire for an antagonist.
0: Oh, I think it's just called uh, rubber, maybe.
2: Yeah,
1: that's so, right. The the killer tire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: I hated it the first time I watched it and the second time I got really fucking baked and then I watched it.
1: <laughs> Not too bad. Well there's Well, there's something it, it, it in a way it kinda loops back to, to to the notion of there's no bad ideas, you know, that right. that um and and some of the some of the neatest films in a way take just Oh, there's a killer tire on the loose. Um, and they just see what they can do with that. And and there's something kind of exhilarating about that in, in an odd kind of a way. That that um, yeah, we've only got twenty five thousand dollars, but let's see what we can do with the killer tire. And um and, and sometimes that that leads in these kind of remarkable directions. I mean, you know, Night of the Living Dead, I guess, would be the original would be a, a great example of that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, and, and, and a lot I, of foreign films now. I've seen foreign films on a $5,000 budget that
1: kick Hollywood's ass, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you see, um, what was the Korean one? Ganjom, Haunted Asylum? Oh, yeah. That was just that. Oh, my God. I love Korean cinema. I just think it's had this real, like, just golden age recently. And, um, yeah, that... Uh, <laughs> I mean, okay, you think to yourself... Here are all these people saying we're going to go into a haunted, cursed asylum. What's the worst that could happen? But that aside, it was it's it's a it's a very freaky movie.
0: Yeah, and kind of um, going to what you said about you know some of the like lower budget films and taking that idea and the creativity is you know sometimes they can build off of that. Like I don't know if you're aware of like the crazy one, thanks killing. And I forget the director who did it. It's about like a killer turkey, but he ended I up kind
1: Now I must.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think there's like a trilogy, but even better. Of, he kind of parlayed that, you know. He he kind of. You know, it's a crazy movie, but he kind of put everything he had into it. I think he only spent like five thousand dollars, and he kind of built his name on that. And then he was able to, with a micro budget, a couple years later. If you've seen that movie, uh, The Headhunter on Shutter, that yeah, was like his most is recent. That
1: the same guy? Oh no, way. yeah, I love that movie. Headhunter's terrific. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that was, um, again, you know, it's, it's Headhunter is a movie where you you get it that they don't have a big budget but what they do within those confines is just amazing um you know the 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 way that in that film you you see almost no fighting it's just the guy coming back each time and he's he's just he's just in horrible shape and he's got some head that he sticks on the wall but he is just a wreck and and yeah, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, I enjoyed that film a great deal. I have to check out the 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 turkey ones. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to tell me, and that that child became Steven Spielberg. But... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: he went no. from turkeys to sharks. You know. <laughs> Once again, would watch honestly. <laughs> 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 yeah, how could you not? I'm t- I'm making these lists of all these movies that i've missed out on oh my <laughs> well,
1: i think there's just you know in a way i i it um for me it even goes back i, I mean i mentioned night of the living dead um and i love to show that I, I used to i would sometimes um actually not even sometimes as often as i could i would try to find an excuse to sneak that movie into whatever class i was teaching and part of the reason I love to do that is because it starts off in such a cheesy way and the students are like, Oh my God, black and white. And, um, and the acting just seems so, so corny. But by the time, actually not even by the time you get to the end, but by the time you get to the scene at the gas pumps, um, the students are just, they're, they're completely riveted and completely horrified. And yeah, when you get to the end they they, they all just look at you and they say, what? Yeah. And that um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think, does that, too. It was a movie I avoided for a long time because I thought, oh, this is just going to be like sort of splatter porn. And I'm not really interested in that. But then one night it was on and I was like, ah, oh, I'll watch it. And I was amazed. I, I was again, you know, you talk about something that, that's done with with just astonishing integrity of vision on a, on a shoestring budget um it's uh it's a great american I, I really think that night of the living dead they're these great american films um yeah. and uh um yeah for that alone if if toby hooper never made another movie or another movie that lived up to that still for that movie alone you know he deserves uh his he he, he should have earned his bit of immortality
2: absolutely um and i mean he's more than earned it 10 times over since then but those two films it's like i like i think of those films and i think i can i can see how they'd be extremely teachable films i mean yeah even, it's like i think you're like the third author to come in here and school us on night of the living dead
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, mean,
2: I think it was catholic we
1: were night of the living dead before you were here yeah <laughs> But I, no.
3: I, honestly, I wish somebody had when when I was of that age, because it's it's just one of these things like yeah. I've just sort of recently tried to start doing is like paying attention to anything in there, you know, the subtleties and get anything below like the surface level. Um, and I think applying it to something that would have, you know, I would have really latched on to something like that, um, you know, at that age. I just think I think that's excellent.
1: Yeah, no, I was I, I have to when it comes to films, I'm a big baby. Um, I'm I'm utterly terrified. When my wife and I got together, she was like, "So you like horror, but you've never watched, you know, The Exorcist or The Shining or or any of these kinds of films." And um, I I may have cried a little. And and then I said, uh, <laughs> <laughs> "So what, you know?" And uh, but yeah, but when, when I've always found horror film more frightening than horror fiction. Um, and and I seem to be in the minority and in this uh most of my friends say ah it's just a movie but for me seeing it up there on the screen you know i have no control over that if if a book starts to frighten me i can put it down or and take a walk or 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 you know turn off my kindle or or whatever um i guess i can do the same thing if it's if it's on my vcr or, or or um streaming but um but yeah that that inability to control what's happening on the screen i have always found very affecting and um so yeah there are plenty of movies um uh, return of the living dead or night the first nightmare on elm street that i didn't watch until like say the last maybe five to ten years at, at which point i was like oh all right you know it was no longer as frightening to me as it would have been if i had watched um if i'd watched it when it was in the theaters although it, it may still um you know, there's that moment in Return of the Living Dead where they have the, um, the, the sort of corpse uh, puppet, I guess you might, a you know, zombie puppet on the, the, uh, on the uh, autopsy table. And, and it's it's telling them that they need to eat flesh because because being dead is so painful because it's nothing but agony and, and only eating brains relieves that agony where that film actually gets kind of th- that's actually deeply disturbing. You know, the, the rest. Oh, OK. You know, there's some neat parts and, and all this kind of stuff. But but that that goes through to something, something else, a, a real sort of layer of or, 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 or portal into darkness.
2: Yeah, it kind of speaks to the writing, I think. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I, you know, something totally segueing off track because I do that. Um, when it comes to Romero's zombies, um, the fact that he made them talk, just I, I'm so in love with that idea. Um, you know what I mean? It just
1: gives well, I think, the... Yeah, I, I think the fact that he was willing to let the idea develop. Yeah. Um So that by the time you get to Day of the Dead, um, you're actually rooting for the zombie. You know, you're you're um, and I, I think that there's something I think it's the beginning of Day of the Dead when you're looking in the lab and you see that there's one zombie that's been reduced to just a brain and eyes. Uh, which is actually an image that shows up in a lot of 80s yeah. era horror films but the, there's even though you know it's a zombie you know but there's something really horrifying about that where yes the zombies are going to eat you uh, they may i suppose they may tear your limb from from limb in the in the process but you are only food to them i i right. guess whereas to this mad scientist you're a science experiment waiting to happen and that's that's actually that that potentially is a lot freakier.
2: Well, especially when you think about the fact that okay, this poor miserable fucker is already a zombie, and now he's just a brain with a couple of eyes. Yeah. You know, so he's a zombified brain with a couple of eyes. You know. Yeah, one, which,
1: I, I feel like in in one of the RoboCop movies, there's a brain with eyes as well. Um, and I can't remember. Wh- I don't think it's the original one. I could be wrong, but um. I, I feel like in two or three um, there's this brain with eyes as well. And 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 I'm, I think it shows up in other movies. It's just it's kind of interesting because I do. I find it a really disturbing image, like like just to think about, you know, and, and that really seems to tap into something um, where you're just you're just all you are is you're able to see, you're able to perceive that way. But other than that, you're just this exposed brain.
2: Right. To completely, completely exposed and vulnerable and helpless
1: and. Yeah, maybe it expresses the way we feel sometimes. I mean, you know, lately, um, it may express the way that we feel. We're just all we can do is watch, and all this horror just kind of, you know, comes into us.
2: God, no lie, man. Now you laid that on me. I'm gonna go get a drink.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm here.
3: I'm sorry. Well, I think that that sort of explains why there, you know, there was that division there between like not wanting to see it on the screen. Cause I I love horror movies, but I do shy away some when I feel like it's going to be something that maybe is going to actually disturb me because that's the thing. Like when you're reading your brain filters, how that appears to you. And I've definitely read stuff that has disturbed me and stuck with me. But when you've got an image up on the screen, like sure you can go scramble for the remote and hit pause or stop, but it's already there.
1: Um, right, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, um, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, speaking of Sasquatch, you know, I, I was interested to find that I, I read Max Brooks's uh, Devolution um, the other week. And I actually I found that that, that was probably in, uh, oddly the most frightening book I've read in a while. And and as I said, that was part of along with Willow Creek. That was what made me realize, wow, the Sasquatches really do it for me. And I don't know why, don't know why that is exactly. Um, but that was the one book where where I felt that the book was kind of getting past those defenses. Hmm,
3: that's a that's quite the endorsement. Because um, that's one of those things where it's like, uh, you know. I always feel like uh, the haunting of Hill House is mm-hmm. and and I love I'm I'm more of a ghost person. I love haunted houses. This absolute sure. favorite trope. And that has always been my favorite because that it was the first one that managed like an actual jump scare on the page yeah. for me. And I feel like that's that's a
1: very hard threshold
3: to to breach. Um you know, but Yeah, and
1: I think that with that book in particular, right, the more you go through it like it's almost like the the I sometimes feel the harder it gets to see, like, like, I don't know how to put this when I at least when I was reading it, there came a point, two or three readings, and I was like, Oh, right, Eleanor, I think I understand more of what's what's actually going on mm-hmm. here. But then, like, beyond that, I was like, but wait, what's this? And what's this? And what's this? And, and, yeah. And you
2: do that, I mean, at least in my experience, so far in life, you do that every time you read that book, you know? yeah Each and every time you start going okay i got that now i didn't really catch that before and all and then you're going exactly the same thing with whatever pops up because of that
1: well there's that moment in in um they're in one room uh and they see the big stat there's a big statue in the room and um you don't really know what they're looking at it it, it, it and it seems um Uh, It seems to be obscene in some way. It seems to be um, a father with children, maybe, except everybody's naked, except that that the one of the male, the the male figure seems to have like a a, be particularly well endowed, um, except maybe there's a dragon there as well. And it's it's this marvelous bit of writing because and and I um, it's it's one of those pieces of writing that that when i teach the book when i when i used to teach the book i would spend a you know a certain amount of time just saying what is this what is she describing what are we seeing you can go to the movie um robert weiss's film which is a brilliant film and weiss gives you this you know sort of a classical bit of statuary as i as i recall but that's not that's not what jackson is describing whatever she's Uh, describing
2: um and the that's one of the things i loved about her and i loved about flannery o'connor is a lot of that stuff happened off screen it was kind of enigmatic you were getting little pieces and little you know hints of what different characters are, are seeing almost like you're feeling their responses but you're not getting a direct answer ever as to what the hell is actually going off on off screen
1: yeah, the first time I read um, *Ghost Story*, uh, I, I had I had learned about *Ghost Story* through Stephen King's *Dance Macabre*, and I went into my little local library and they had a copy of it, and so I took it out. My uh, um, that's <laughs> funny. I mean, my father had no idea what I was reading. And uh, and then I, I, I read it and I got to the end of it and I was like, man, I missed. Like, I knew I had missed a bunch of that book, but but it didn't make me angry or anything like that. I was just like, that's so cool. I can reread it and there'll be more stuff for me to get. And I, I for a while, I just used to go through um, Ghostland. Uh, go, I'm sorry, Ghost Story and Shadowland. And um, lately, I kind of feel that way with uh, Robert Aikman's stuff, too where I read his stories and I'm like, what was that? You know, and, and sometimes I, I think I get it after a reading or two. Um but other times Kelly links like that for me too. Some of Kelly's stories I, I read and I'm like, oh right, okay, gotcha. And then she get like this one story called stone animals. And I don't know how many times I've reread that story. I I've taught it a number of times because I thought maybe the students will get it, you know, <laughs> maybe they'll understand <laughs> if they can explain it to me. And they were just like, and you know, they came up with a few good insights, but at the end they were like, Oh, sorry, man. And, um, but I kind of love that. You know, I, I kind of, I kind of love that thought of these stories that, that are just enigmatic in these, in these deep kinds of, of ways.
2: Yeah, I do. I do, too. It's actually probably um, one of my favorite things when it comes to especially when when you're talking fiction, when it comes to short stories, um, enigmatic or ambiguous is a big yes for me.
1: You know, well, I think if you can do it. I think if you could I mean, look. Sometimes you want the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You you want Leatherface with his chainsaw waving it around in the street, like you know. Um, yeah, no I,
2: fucking mystery here.
1: Yeah, <laughs> here we go. You know, it's you survived. That was it. Good job. You know. Um, hmm. But I I think that um, I I love the thought of those things that really linger with you afterwards. Um, and um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways that you can achieve that with with fiction. Um, but I, I love the thought of those things that, that that stick with the reader afterwards, that stick with me afterwards. And, and that like stone animals that I return to and I think, ah, Kelly, what were you doing there? Um, or um, or, yeah, a, a lot of Aikman stuff. Um, even Ghost Story still has its mysteries to me yeah. after all this time. Uh, Kelly is one that uh, is
2: endlessly, endlessly fascinating to me as an author. Um, yeah. you, you feel like you're in the presence of, of uh, royalty,
1: if not a deity, when you read her stuff, you know? Well, yeah, she just, she comes at things in this really interesting way. And um, I, um, I I think... Maybe this takes us back to what we were talking about earlier about you know like like the the way that you can approach things can be part of the fun and and part of the challenge but also part of the part of the joy and um so so when I look at her stuff or um uh, or Aikman's stuff say like like part of what i'm thinking is is what can i what can i learn from this you know like like how can how can i do something like this um can i do something or at least my version of this you know i I don't just want to i don't just want to swap out the names and and um uh but 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 how can i achieve the kinds of effects that she achieves of of this feeling of of the mysterious and um you know, this feeling that something's happening to you, but you're not exactly sure what it is and, and uh, you're not exactly sure why it is and you kind of enjoy it, but maybe it's also kind of freaky.
3: That is an excellent,
1: yeah, <laughs> that's an excellent is.
3: description of it. Um, and I, I feel I've never actually read Her work. That's terrible. I'm sitting here on Goodreads, like adding all of these things that you guys keep mentioning.
1: Well, I want to say I don't know if if this is still the case, but for a while, you know, she and her husband um, own small beer press and and run small beer press. And they published her first two books. And for a while, she made her first book, Stranger Things Happen, um, available for a free download. I I don't know if it still is, Um, but uh, um, it was just something they decided to to do. Um, I think maybe when the second book, uh, Magic for Beginners, came out.
2: Mm, That's a great book, too. Yeah. I can hear what we're all writing.
3: I was going to say, don't expect me to contribute for a minute. I'm adding all of (laughs) So
2: So when you're looking at authors like that, also look at Karen Russell. She's another one.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Yeah. uh, She's got the story about the wear cactus or whatever it is the woman who gets the the sort of cactus she's I can't remember what it's called the graft the bad graft or something like that this woman yeah. who sort of bonds with a cactus or or not <laughs> yeah or not <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> a
3: about every aspect of this wow not even gonna commit to whether she bonds with a cactus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're working on it they're in therapy right now, she and the right. cactus they're yeah. trying to you know well, I'm they, glad they're working uh, yeah. on it <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. the cactus is very prickly sorry
2: yeah. <laughs> they don't yeah they don't live together anymore but they are they are in mediation.
1: that's right they share custody of I don't know what you know but
2: God let's not even <laughs> 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 well um
3: so totally off-topic random question but so are you are you a an outliner or are you a pantser when you write
1: um i'm a little bit of both in that um in order to like i've got a, i'll have ideas floating around in my head so i'll think to myself um i would like to write a story um um i've, I've never actually written a real haunted house story my first novel house of windows was supposed to be a haunted house story but it's as much as anything I've, I've realized over time, it's a novel about a curse, about a, a kind of malediction. Um, and so I think to myself, okay, I really would like to write a proper haunted house story. And so that's kind of like floating around in my in my head. And then something or some things will, will come together with that. And I'll, I'll have a sort of moment where I think, ah, wait a minute. I know how to do that. And a lot of times they will come to, when they come together, like I'll I'll I don't know um read I guess in my mind's eye a, a kind of opening line or even opening paragraph and I'll I'll write that down and then as I go along um I may jot notes in the margins to myself um if if there's something I'm like ah oh, I'm kind of pooped for today but I want to make sure for tomorrow I get to this scene or this detail there does come a point when I'm writing where I know what the ending is going to be and then I don't write it down but but it definitely at that moment it starts to shape what I'm writing it it starts to 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 um to send me towards that uh, that thing um what I will do sometimes if I find myself getting um I don't know sort of like um arthritic I I guess in my writing where things are just a kind of creaky and they're 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 not moving right um as I'll draw um I when I was a kid my biggest goal was to be a comic book artist for, uh, uh, Marvel or DC. And then, um, and this wonderful art teacher when I was in grade school and then I went to high school, um, and, um, I was in Catholic school and they were like art. Um, and so we had mechanical drawing and, and that didn't do it. So I, I, and at the same time I discovered Stephen King, but, but drawing has always been important to me. And, um, so yeah, I'll doodle, I'll, I'll, I'll draw, um, when I was writing House of Windows, I drew the floor plan for the house. I was trying to figure out where everything was located. When I was writing The Fisherman, um, I drew the big monster that the guys encounter at the very end, um, just because I wanted, I, I don't know, it, it, it helps my mind to to work that way. So that's, in, I, you know, I don't know what you call that. It's not pantsing, it's not outlining, it's drawing, I guess. Huh.
3: That's the first time we've had that answer.
1: I'm pretty sure. Yeah.
3: yeah. Oh, do I get a prize? <laughs> yeah. We'll have to come up with one for you, because yeah, that's that's new.
0: Yeah, and yeah, and it's a pretty it's a pretty unique approach, I think. Um, you know, I like Laurel said, I've never heard that because it's almost like kind of using almost like another medium to try and knock loose something rather than, you know, outlining or something like that.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And and I, um, um, I still, I still read comics, not, I can't afford to read everything I would like to read. Um, but I still try to keep up with at least some horror comics and, um, and it's something, it's a medium I I would like to work in more as, as a writer. I think my, my art has not, you know, kept pace, uh, um, with, with say my writing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that, um, that remains near and, and dear to my heart. So there's, there's something about being able to do that, that just, um, loosens me up imaginatively speaking.
3: Well, I think in particular with, I can really imagine with the uh, house of windows trying to plot that out because that would be intricate <laughs> the, way, the way that everything kind of was laid out in there. i I and I hadn't thought about that, that that's I mean, I would have classified that as a haunted house. But, yeah, I mean, I think you're right that that the haunting really comes from the curse uh, yeah. that the father creates, you know, with respect to the son. So that's but it goes back to what you were saying about, like, taking, you know, looking more at at the character's reaction to those supernatural
1: circumstances. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and it's it's um at, at one point. Um, and, and, this is a, this is an ongoing project. Um, so, um, House of Windows was published by Nightshade Press originally when they were an independent press. And then, um, they went out of, or, you know, they, 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 um, they merged, they were taken over by Skyhorse Books. And, um, and then all the time that the book was, was out, um, it never made any money or so they said. And then when they they wanted me to sign off on the Skyhorse deal um, and they said, you know what, your book is finally it's finally earned some money. It's earned one hundred dollars. And if you uh, if you sign this deal, um, you'll get one hundred dollars. And and I was just so offended, I guess, um, that I said to my wife, look if we really need the hundred bucks, you know, I'll do this. But, and she said, no, no, that's fine. So I called my agent and I was like, fuck these guys. So, um, so I just, I thought, you know, the book will just go out of print. That's fine. But then I was at an event, uh, the Merrimack Merrimack Valley, Halloween book festival that Chris Golden puts on, uh, way the heck up near New Hampshire, um, uh, towards Halloween every year. And, um, I gave a copy of the book to an editor who was working for a press called Diversion Books, and um, and they, they they took it they they brought out a new edition of it, um, which is sold you know not I mean I'm not rich but it sold, you know more than a hundred dollars, and um, one yeah. of the things one of the Sorry. things that we we were talking about for that was uh, trying to write some kind of follow up to it. Um, and I started to do that. And I just I, I, as I said earlier, I'm not a fast writer, so I could never get it done in time uh, for the release of the book and, and all this kind of stuff. But it, it is in my mind that like that that structure is is a weird place, you know, and, and that like it would be fun to use that structure in a different kind of way, not not just as playing out this father's curse on his son and, and, and sort of damning his son as it were with that curse. But, but maybe it could play out, maybe that kind of unstable structure, if you will, could, could host something else or, 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 or be, be the setting for another kind of story.
3: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: Speaking of that, another kind of story I think we would be remiss in not at least touching on uh, the fisherman while we're having yeah. a conversation with John Langan. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to uh, ask him about that um,
0: because kind of like the, how he was just talking about the structure for that. Like one of the coolest things that I liked about the fishermen and also children of the Fang does that too, is kind of, how you have, like, all these different story components and how you kind of weave it into one. And also kind of how you, like you said, you try and take some of these familiar ideas and you try and make them more personal. Personal. That's what I liked about The Fisherman is, you know, it's very realistic and that you can relate to these characters and kind of how they deal with their feelings. But then you have, like, probably, like, one of the most imaginative Dark and just downright creepy events that just kind of happen throughout it, and it's almost like you kind of have, you know, multiple stories in one novel.
1: Yes, um, I've always loved um, books that have like like a lot of stories in them. So Ghost Story and, and Shadowland both do that. Um, uh, King's Pet Cemetery kind of does that, uh, kind of does that as well, um, and. Um, and it's just one of those things. I, I mean, I grew up in a, in a storytelling family. Um, my parents would talk about, um, being little kids during the, um, the second world war and, and just sort of like, you know, life, they were married for seven years before they had me. And so they would tell stories about what their life was like, uh, you know, in the good old days as they called it. And, um, we, uh, um, and, and, you know, <laughs> It's funny when I think about this, my um, my dad, we my brother and I had to uh, um, and my sisters too. you know, we all had to be in bed by like nine o'clock at night. And so um, once in a while, if there was a special movie on, uh, which was usually a James Bond movie because James Bond was really big in my family, we would get to watch the first half hour of that movie uh, and then we would have to go to bed. And then the next day, my dad would basically narrate like the entire movie to us. Um, and so I, I think that um, that kind of process of, of storytelling was, you know, it, it was sort of in my DNA al- almost, you know. And um, um, when I visited my relatives in Scotland, they're all they're all terrific storytellers. Oh, yeah. um, so there were, and and a lot of the stuff that I studied then. Like when I went to college, um, you know, Faulkner and Joseph Conrad, um, uh, Robert Penn Warren's novel *All the King's Men*. There were just all these, all these books I gravitated to. That um, uh, *The Great Gatsby*, *Sun Also Rises* were were just stories within within stories, sometimes within stories. And I find that form, um, uh, that approach, really, really seductive. And um, I mean, to be honest with you. I didn't intend the story in the middle of the fishermen to become as big as it became. I, I thought it would be a, you know, like, like a, uh, um, a short story basically inside like a little novella or something like that. But yeah. um, when it really started to grow, I, I thought about advice that uh, Jeff Ford had given uh, to Laird Barron, who, who then, you know, told me about it. And, and Ford, when when Laird was writing the croning, I think Ford had said to him, "Look, when you're writing your first novel, your impulse is going to be to play it safe. Uh, fight that impulse. Go crazy. Go nuts. Just just you know, stay like like don't be don't play it safe." And so, although this wasn't my first novel at that point, I I I still. Recognized the advice as good advice and thought, you know, just go nuts, just just kind of let it be widescreen lunacy and and see what uh, see what happens. Um, and um, and yeah, it it, uh, um, it it turned out honestly, I I um, I felt it was a, a little bit of a gamble. I I thought, man, if people want to really you know yell at me about this and say this is ridiculous no one could talk for this long you know um i mean and i, I tried there, there's an element that there's a, a bit um at the beginning of the third section where um where abe talks about the story kind of like expanding in his mind after he heard it as, as if he'd been told more like as if he downloaded the story you know like um and um, so I tried to kind of cover my butt that way. But I, I thought that was the one place where if anybody wanted to kind of tag me, they could tag me for that. And that would be that would probably be a fair, um, a fair complaint.
2: Yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you about
1: that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you, <laughs> this is an interview <laughs> Simon, Simon Stranzis, I think it was, posted a picture and he was like, this is a typical John Lankin story. And it was a guy and he's holding a frame. A picture frame, and inside that frame is another frame, and inside that frame is another frame. (laughs) uh, I was like, "Damn you, Simon! I feel seen."
3: Um. Go ahead, Shane. No, go ahead, Laurel. Well, I was just gonna say, like, it's a, it's yeah not not to pile on that but in thinking about this about this collection I'm like yep I can sort of see that on these but uh, um Absolutely. I just I Yeah and I I mean I love that structure. I feel like it's just like because a lot of times with the collection um I'll have it's you know I'll have to just like read a story or two and then kind of come back to it. Um, but it's, I mean, it is, it kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier with having just a, you know, a, a variety of voice, a variety of, of, uh, the fashion yeah. in which these things are, you know, crafted and the tone of them. There's so much variety here to it, you know, and just like, just the, the, the way that they're constructed. So it's, it's just one of those things where you just kind of keep getting pulled deeper into it.
2: Yeah, I do, agree wholeheartedly. That's, um, at the core of it, that, that's mo- my very favorite thing running through it is that it's as rich and Laurel both know, it takes me about a year and a half to read a short story collection, but um, I'm tearing through this one
1: because for that very reason. Well, thank you. I, I, I do kind of feel like our lives are story shaped, you know, like, and they're certainly impacted by stories. And I, I feel in a lot of ways um, and maybe we all feel this way. Like, I feel like my own life is not particularly exciting and hasn't really been particularly exciting. But I feel like I, I know a lot of stories. You know, I know a lot of stories of other people's lives and things that have. So, you know, um, uh, in comparison to Stephen Graham Jones or Laird Barron, pff, I've done nothing. You know, I, I'm just like, hey, I watched some TV, you know, and Laird's like, well, I was out wrestling a bear, you know. And, <laughs> uh, you know steven's doing whatever he's doing you know and um um yeah i, I just I, I think of myself as as not particular I, I mean you know not not i haven't lived a particularly adventurous life but um but i've always been attentive to stories uh, the stories that are told around me stories of you know famous people or or, or just famous stories um and so i'm uh, it, Although I would like at some point to write a kind of like just a straightforward, uh, you know, action story or something like that, where it's just, you know, point A to point B and and that's it. I think that would be a great challenge. But that's that formal thing that we've talked about where, you know, the, the form of that seems to me really interesting. How do you do that without major digressions, you know, without like, you know. Um, hold on a second I need to tell you all about my childhood and then we'll get back to the, the <laughs> lunatic who's after me
2: I, I hate that approach though as a poet it's like no if you give me a structure or a theme to aim at or something like that I'm suddenly just like frozen it's like what the fuck do you want me to do with this <laughs> So, I admire people who can do that you know, I've seen authors recently write the best work I've ever seen out of them to uh, what I would call interesting calls, which mean
1: impossible
2: to me calls.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, I've always been fascinated. I don't think I'm a speedy enough writer to do it, but um, I, I, I'm fascinated with those kinds of like tie in projects that people do where they're like, oh, I wrote my Dungeons and Dragons novel or or. Um, or write my Star Wars novel or, or my Star Trek novel or, or whatever. Um, that again, it's like another set of formal constraints. I, I think that the, in some ways I think the D and D novel would be easier to write because you'd have a lot more freedom than you would have in the Star Wars novel or, or, or the Star Trek novel. Um, unless you just invented your own completely different ship or, or, you know, setup or, or whatever. But I don't know if they would let you do that. Um, but, um, I, I guess working in comics, certain comics anyway, would be kind of kind of the same thing, you know, where you, you have a, a certain set of restrictions and it's like, well, let's see what we can do with these.
2: Yeah, yeah. like I, And like I say, I admire that ability. Um, I don't have it too much. I can take somebody else's words that they've already written and be inspired by them, but their ideas generally are like, yeah, well... Why don't you write that?
1: Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I... It's an interesting question, I and mean, I don't know... Um, has there been anything... There, there was a, a movie uh, released in the last year or two, I want to say, maybe a little bit longer, called A Dark Song. Yeah. And and it's this fascinating movie about this woman, and something terrible has happened to her child, and she contacts a sorcerer, um, so that they can go to this remote, uh, estate in what looks like the English, I don't know, the Moors somewhere, and he can lead her through a magical ritual, um, so she can achieve, um, what looks like it's going to be revenge, and the, um, one of the things that the film is complimented on commended for and i think quite rightly so is that it just shows that that like like the whole movie almost is just this the sort of the grind of of trying to go through this magical invocation um but i remember watching it and getting to the end of it and thinking man i would love to remake this movie and i would love to set it in um in the inner city And I would love the mother to be a young woman of color whose son has just been gunned down by the cops. And I would love I would love to make that movie. And I just thought, well, you know, it's not going to happen. So I think that was the one time where I, I like I saw somebody else's idea. And I just thought, man, if you just changed a few details, you would have a very different movie. But but I think a no less powerful one.
2: There's our big, awkward (laughs) silence.
0: Go ahead, Rich. No, I was just going to say that that would be, you know, a pretty cool take on that. And, you know, kind of just to go back a little bit when you kind of mentioned, like, those tie-in things. Like, if you could kind of take on one of those kinds of projects, like, what would appeal to you? You know, based on, you know, your kind of writing style, like, would you want to take on a certain project that maybe is a little bit different and try and kind of put your style into it, or would you want to adapt something that you like that's kind of in a similar sensibility to your style?
1: Oh man, if I could play another sandboxes, right? I would. um, So, you know, uh, on the one hand, there's the, the sort of the comic book answer, right? Like I, I was, um, man, the Alan Moore's run on swamp thing. Um, hit me at like the right time. I was probably like 18, 19, some somewhere around there, and I was just blown away by it, which meant that I was also in on the ground level when the John Constantine character was created and the Hellblazer comic started. And I think Hellblazer was the comic I don't think I had every issue, but I came closest to having like like that's the closest I've ever come to having a complete run of anything. And that character, um I, I would love to, how could I, you know, how could I not want to mess around with, uh, with that character, even, even in his current reincarnation where they're trying, they've tried to make him more of a superhero. I, I still think you could do, uh, they try to make him basically the DC version of Dr. Strange. Um, which, yeah. you know, is a mistake maybe, but, um, but I think that either, either there was the swamp thing or, or Constantine, um, would be a lot of fun to, to mess around with. um, on um, on the Marvel side of things, I, I think um, uh, Doctor Strange, you know, has, has some real potential. Um, you know, it, it's funny because I think about all those, the, there were some great uh, Marvel horror comics, you know, uh, Marv Wolfman and Gene Colin on, on Tomb of Dracula. Um, and it makes me think, oh man, what could you do with, with Dracula if you tried to bring, uh, bring him back and make him the focus? I, I suspect anything I did would probably be best handled as like a limited series, you know, four issues, 12 issues, something like that. Um, I loved, uh, uh, Wolfman and Colin's night force. Um, uh, when, uh, when that came out, which has been rebooted, um, a couple of times. And, um, um, I, I think, I, I think that would be a lot of fun to, to, um, to mess around with beyond that. Um, yeah, who doesn't want to write a Star Wars novel, right? <laughs> but but, yeah. but I, I also think that um, um, I, I'm not sure at this point, I'm not sure what to do with Star Wars, I guess. Like, like Star Trek, in a way, I think is actually potentially a more interesting franchise because if you think about star trek is at its best about these kind of like what does it mean to be human and and the characters get involved in these real kinds of of like moral conundrums and and such i, I think that um and and i i think that they're often trying to find a kind of humane way to solve problems you know so so um I think that there's something really kind of profound about that, that, that we're actually, I, I, I think we benefit from having that uh, in our entertainment. Um, I think, um, I think like a and d book would be fun. It would be fun to write, um, uh, it would be fun to write like just a, you know, some kind of crazy Dungeons and Dragons adventure. Um, I never... Uh, and this is no knock on them. It's it just I was already really into King and such at this time. I never got into like the Dragonlance books, but my younger brother was a huge Dragonlance fan. He read all of those books and and all of the sequels and all that sort of stuff. And we would talk about it, and he would sort of fill me in on what was going on. And and um, they seemed like a lot of fun. They they seemed like those guys had a had a blast. So, um, I, I think. Um, I guess the other thing, I mean, when I was a kid, man, I I, I got through maybe fifth grade math class. I'm sorry, Sister Ann, by uh, by reading Conan. Um, this was when um, Lynn Carter and Elspreght de Camp had edited uh, Robert E. Howard's stories into this 12 paperback series and what the, and they arranged the stories in chronological order and then they wrote like filler stories you know so so oh robert e howard said that conan did blah 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 Well we'll write a story about that um <laughs> i think it would be um i think it'd be really fun to um to mess around with with conan um he was uh he was a great character
2: um, and it, he was like fantasy's answer to the, the
1: stereotypical
2: noir character in a way.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. And I, I think that there was um um what was he, you know, like, like uh, Howard describes him as like like something about, you know, great mirth, but titanic melancholy or something like that. And, and there was a, a kind of a depth to him um that was at at its at his best anyway at, at Howard's best that was really that was really something
2: yeah
0: yeah go ahead i was just going to say to kind of take a shot in the dark you know if anybody in the comic industry actually listens to our show i hope that you get to do the constantine one cuz i would read the hell out of that oh
1: thank you thank <laughs> yeah. you yeah I, I i just think that he's a great character and i think that what what was so great about Constantine was he was a betrayer. And, and I think that, that I, I I think that's probably, I feel that that's been lost a little bit from what I've seen of the, of the, the recent, more recent incarnation of him. And, you know, I get it. They're trying to make him a little bit more kid friendly. Um, But the original Constantine just saw that there were, You know, from the get-go, actually, the way Constantine's originally conceived, right, he tries to perform an exorcism on this little girl. It goes horribly wrong, and she goes to hell because of of, of his mistake. Um, And so he's traumatized by that. And then um, he, he can never figure out, or I shouldn't say, like, whenever there's a solution to a problem, Um, For him, it just inevitably involves sacrificing one of his pals. You know, he's like, well, if I, you know, if I fed Shane to the wood shepherd, this would solve all our problems. Exactly. (laughs) It would distract the flesh eating monster. And, you know, and then Rich could charge it with the spear, you know. Um, And so that like like, like that was kind of the way his mind worked. And I, I thought that that was a really and but but he's also haunted by those ghosts, by by the ghosts of those figures. That was, um, yeah, that that was an amazing, it was Jamie, Jamie Delano or Delano, I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but who, who wrote the early Constantine stuff. And, and he set up an amazing character. And so many of the writers who came afterwards, I, I thought, did some of their best work writing, writing that character.
2: Yeah, like you say, but before, I mean, I agree, before he was watered down, he was a great character. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it would be really dark just, just they're not going to do this, but it would be really dark if he was doing the same thing with superheroes now, you know, so it would be really dark if, if he was like, well Captain Marvel, you've got to go <laughs> Yeah <laughs> For
3: the good of the order
1: Right, out. he's just like, you know, Darkseid is, he's really a problem and so we're going to turn Captain Marvel into a magic bomb and blow up Darkseid, you know, that's like the kind of stuff that Constantine would do um and then, of course, it would go horribly wrong in some way. And Darkseid would only be like horribly like like this blown apart monster that's like trying bigger, to get Constantine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah
2: it, to steal to steal Laurel's uh, saying, I would watch the hell out of that.
1: Well, it's uh, you know, <laughs> it's it's I have the impression. I mean, I, I um like I, I'm facebook friends social media friends with a couple of comic book artists and i i certainly have the impression that these things are you know they're like gold right now and and the kinds of experiments that people could perform on them in the past i i i I don't know that the comic book companies that the big two anyway are as adventurous as they used to be um um You know, so and I think the unfortunate thing is it means that like a character like Batman at this point is just stuck in this. You know, my parents are dead and I'm going to just beat everybody up. Um, And it's just it was it was innovative and exciting when Frank Miller did it in the late 80s with the Dark Knight Returns and then Batman year one. Um, But now it's just tired. It's just, you know, Batman is a psychopath. Okay, I get it. You know, so what? Um, There's just no there's no interest in that whatsoever. Um, it would be far more interesting to turn Batman inside out and make Batman the the sort of debonair detective, um, who is, who is the smartest man in the room and is using that to solve more crimes than beating people up. Um, and yeah, I I spent far too much time thinking about these things, you know, (laughs) I'm out with the dogs and I'm talking to the dogs and the dogs are like, look, man, it's late. We just need to get back inside. And I'm like, no. We need to resolve this. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Um, So, John, um, we've kept you for quite a bit and it's, it's been a great time talking to you and, you know, rather, I mean, we do want to know what you've got uh, coming up in the future, but I also wanted to give a shout out to uh, "Does the Dog Die" in this podcast because that's where I first heard about it. But I was just wondering if you could, uh, if you're still planning on working on that novel that's kind of, kind of tied to the fisherman, and if you care to kind of give like the barest. Phones, you know kind of <laughs> description of it uh, without either ruining it for yourself or for others
1: no i'm 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 uh i'm happy to uh um i'm happy to be here as long as you guys you know as long as you guys uh uh can endure me um i think as far as um yeah i, I do still have plans to work on this uh work on this uh other book there are actually three there are All right. Uh, So there are two kind of like sequel projects uh, to The Fisherman. And one of them deals with um, what the character of Raynor, who's the kind of dad sorcerer character in the middle part, uh, what he gets up to when um, we're told uh, uh, towards the end of that section that he disappears for a week at one point, And this is when he's beginning to show the signs of what seems to be dementia, but, but which is a result of, um, uh, of all the magic that he's, he's kind of tampered with. Um, so anyway, he disappears for a week. And so this tells the story of, of what happens, um, uh, to him and, and where he goes during that time. And it involves, um, it involves the tunnel that was built under the Hudson River to carry the water that came from the reservoir uh, down to the city. Um, This tunnel was built, um, geez, I can never remember. I always get the the numbers wrong. It's always deeper than I thought it was, um, but at least like 500 feet down um, from the surface of the water, you know, under the bedrock. Um, And so um, stuff happens there and ultimately he is involved in the response to that stuff. Um, so that's the more immediate book that that I was talking about. Um, and it may not. I've, I've thought it might be a novella. I, I don't know that. Um, I don't know that it would be as long as *The Fisherman*, because I, I don't think it would have the same kind of framing narrative. I think this would be more just a, a kind of um, a historical narrative. And then um, there's another book that involves, um, the stone. When, when, um, when I was doing research on the construction of the, of the Ashokan Reservoir, I, um, I discovered this, this, uh, little bit of information The all the, all the soil had to be removed. Everything had to be removed, scraped down to rock. And there were teams of men who, um, uh, pulled up the, they had mule teams and they would pull up all the trees, um, and, and tree stumps that were in the ground. And this one, uh, these one guys, a set of guys, uh, pulled up a tree and, and clutched in the roots of the tree. There was like this weird kind of crystalline object and it, it, later, you know, disappeared. Um, my suspicion or my, my, my thought is that this may have been some kind of maple tree. And this was maybe like maple syrup that had been, um, crystallized by a lightning strike or, or something like that but it was too good a detail not to appropriate so in in the fisherman that thing showed what they find clutched in the roots of the tree is like a little magic orb you know and um and there's a there's a um a novel i have planned that explains what happened or, or in which that orb shows up let's let's put it that way um so yeah there's there's at least there's those two novels um and there's a whole bunch more. There's, um, um, I, I, have, I have ideas for seven or eight more novels, um, beyond that. It's, it's just a matter of, of having the, the time at, at this point to get to them. Um, you know, when I started publishing, I, I would look at, um, Locus say, and, and I was, Oh, look at all these, look at all these anthologies. You know, I, I want to get to the point where I'm going to be invited to all of those. And, I wouldn't say I'm invited to everything now, but I'm certainly invited to a lot of stuff. And, um, it's hard to turn that down because I'm like, this is what I wanted. Um, the problem of course is, is that, you know, that, um, that interferes with writing a novel because you've got another story to write and another story to write. Um, so at, at some point I need to find a better balance of, of story writing and and novel writing, um, to, to try to get to, um, to what's next. Um, but um but I will. I will at some point. I promise. Those um, sound great. <laughs> Go ahead, Shane. You. Thank you.
2: No, I was just gonna say um I am about five minutes from probably getting my ass kicked for not making dinner. So. <laughs> <laughs> said um do you have anything that you uh, are burning to make sure people hear about before we cut you loose for you know a few hours at least
1: the book uh, the book comes out um on uh, august 18th you can get it through word horde i'm in the process of of uh completing a bunch of of um What do you call it? You know, book plates for signing them and doing little doodles on them and and that sort of stuff. If if you order directly from word hoard Um, and uh, I've got a new novella uh, about Paul Tremblay called Altered Beast, Altered Me. That's in Ellen Datlow's Ellen Datlow's final cuts um if you want to read about terrible things happening to paul tremblay that's your place to go <laughs> um, i'm if, all over that if, but... like so yeah. many people you've been wronged by paul this is your chance <laughs> to uh to be right to, to get revenge um there's uh you know I, I guess um i always feel like just this this amazing sense of 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 uh, disbelief and gratitude. You know, whenever I'm on one of these shows, I'm, I'm always like, these people want to talk to me, you know, it's what, how was that? What what happened? You know, how did I like, like, who did I fool? You know? Um, so I'm, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm grateful to you guys for, for taking the time to talk to me and, and talk about my stuff. And, and I'm also, I'm grateful, that I get to listen to you guys talking to Stephen Graham Jones and and other people, you know, when I'm doing my workout, I I love to listen to what other writers have to say. Um, and I, I, I love the, um, I I love the long form conversation format. You know, this isn't just, uh, five minutes, sound bites, whatever, see you later, but it's really a chance to dig into things. And I, I appreciate that you guys do this.
2: Oh man, we love to do it. And all, and we also, um, when we have guys like you on after we're all done, we're, I can't believe we suckered that guy to, into coming on this show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so nah, that's buddy. a mutual feeling. Um, we're that's honored exactly and grateful because cool. uh, yeah. it, it's, it's a symbiotic relationship at the at best, you know.
1: I tend to think of it as parasitic on my part, but I'll go with (laughs) uh, you You can just be the whale shark and I'll be the little remora clinging to the side.
0: Uh, But yeah, just kind of to echo what Shane said. Yeah, it was it was great having you on, and uh, we hope you are interested in coming back on in the future. We'd love to have you anytime
1: absolutely and i have i have laurel's new book on uh on pre-order and i i have the other one on my kindle i'm a bad person and i haven't read it yet i'm sorry um but i will and uh yeah no i i hope uh i hope this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship
3: well, thank uh me you. too thanks i appreciate that and and yes i'm echo the guys i'm i was very psyched to have you on and this has been an excellent conversation i'm gonna go back and make notes and
1: you know Oh, that's a relief. Uh, it's always terrible when they're like, you were such a disappointment. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're actually not going to broadcast this show. Uh, yeah,
2: no, it was. Yeah. Trimbley was the disappointment. But,
1: you know. I, didn't,
0: I didn't want to be the one to
1: say it, you know. But, uh, you
2: know. <sighs> uh, no, we love Paul, too. Um, I think the only disappointment ever is when it's just the three of us and I show up. No Notice so, how
1: quickly they said no.
2: yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a gap in there. You did catch that right?
1: <laughs> no they gap. just laughed. They're just like, oh, don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nah.
2: John, it's been great talking to you, man. Thanks. anytime at all. Uh, maybe someday we'll have you come back and even uh, guest host with us some night.
1: Sure, sure. No, I'd love to. There's lots okay. of people I'd love to torment.
2: Actually, yeah, that's oh, yeah, what I
1: was thinking, too. That sounds fantastic. Stephen Graham-Jones, I've got some questions for you, buddy.
2: <laughs> Coming back sooner than you thought, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks a lot, John, man. It's been okay. great.
1: Thank you, guys. Have a good rest of your nights. Thanks you too. Do Take thanks, care. So. <laughs>
2: Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing?